I was thinking about, uh, as we start this series on work, I was thinking about some of the jobs that I've had, and I was going through them in my mind. I was a paper boy, had a paper route when I was first, uh, when I was a young boy. It, it, my grandfather, who's now passed away, he actually shared that job with me. He didn't know that when we first signed up, but that's kind of how it ended up. Uh, I worked at the Elmhurst Drugstore. My good friend Tim Rapetsky said, this is a great job, and then he passed on to me and left. So I was uh, scraping the gum off floors and answering questions about feminine hygiene. So that was, <laughs> as a 14-year-old boy, that was, a, that was an interesting job. Uh, I picked and packed orders at a glass, uh, China glassware warehouse. I drove tow motors at Reimer Trucking, uh, of managing to avoid any, um, what they call, incidents at work uh, for a few years. Uh, that was a cross-dock operation. That was interesting. I worked in project management for an institutional hospital staffing company. I worked in Indonesia for three months uh, with various international workers and uh, setting up a camp in one part of Indonesia in the middle of the country and then over um, in the east end in the jungle. Uh, I was the, listen to these titles, I was the product assistant on Shreddies. Yes, many children grow up dreaming of those kinds of jobs. Uh, <laughs> I was the brand manager on Handy Snacks. You didn't know Handy Snacks had a brand manager. You didn't know there was any really thought needed into that, but you have to decide how much real cheese you're going to put into it and so forth. Um, I worked on the Jello business. I worked in marketing for Double Bubble. That was a good job. Um, I worked in advertising and product development for Swish LA, chicken, Christian chicken as they called it. Um, I worked in operations there, traveling around various restaurants, and now I'm the pastor. And I was thinking, this is the, lo this is the longest job I've ever had. So we should all feel good about that. <laughs> I just, this last May, it was like five years, and I think usually I was moving on. So, but I like this job a lot, so I don't plan on, on moving on. But uh, maybe that's disconcerting for you or comforting. I don't know. Um, so, but it, I have to laugh when my kids are complaining about, about their work that they have to do, whether it's homework or housework, and they look at me with these pained expressions like, oh, how long am I going to have to work for? And I just kind of laugh because I'm like, oh, you have no idea. Uh, this is just beginning. And I was thinking about that, that really we work and we'll work, whatever it is. If you want to count school years, certainly those of us who are in school would say, absolutely, that's work uh, for our entire lives, virtually. And there isn't anything that we do more than work other than sleep. So with our waking hours, there isn't anything we do more that even comes close to work. We work is life in that sense. Now, when I say that, that may come off as a negative statement, but it's not actually. It's just a statement of fact that most of our lives are spent working in some shape or form, whether it's in school or whatever work it is that you do, whether you get paid for it or not, whether it's volunteer, uh, whether you like it or not, whether you're, even if you're in the process of looking for, so what we would, you would call a, a job or employment, you're still working, you're still doing things. There are things that are still required of you. And the, act, the bulk of the activity of our lives is working activity. And that just struck me, I think, for it sounds like a, an obvious sort of thing, but there isn't anything perhaps that defines us more in life than our work and our activity. And it's a universal truth. And in fact, some cultures, more, more, we, we tend to worship leisure a little bit more in this culture than maybe other countries. And in other cultures, the hours would be much more. But I did the math. If you were sort of counting your school years, you're going to work for over 100,000 hours in your lifetime. That's a lot of hours. And I think what is true about this, if you look at economics, macro, micro, if you look at social studies and wellness studies, and if you just even just look at your own life anecdotally. Finding joy in those hours of work, since there are so many of them, is the key to unlocking human flourishing in life. Unlocking human flourishing, like in your own life, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in this city, in this country, in the world, is tied to being able to discover joy in our work because there isn't anything that we do more than work. Studies have even shown that if an individual or a group of people in a company find joy and engagement in their work, that the morale in that place is higher, and that if morale and, and, and people engagement is high, work Output and productivity is high. Work is better, 
in terms of the quality of the work. So if you think about the quality of innovation, the quality of ideas, the quality of what's happening, and if the quality of work is higher, then the results of the work are better. If you just want to be very sort of cold and crass, more profits, but probably more results, better products in the market, better solutions, solutions to problems that have persisted for a long time. And so if you think about it, if an individual or a group of people find joy in their work, they are happier and life is better for them. And I would argue that if that's what we do most days, then the households they go home to at the end of every day, whenever the end of that day is, are going to be happier. Because people are coming home not drained, not frustrated, not angry, but engaged, fulfilled, maybe tired, but a good tired that the households will actually flourish. And if all of that happens, the work is better. And if the work is better, the results are better. And if the results are better, more jobs, more solutions, economy grows. And generally speaking, society is healthier and better off. It's one of the defining marks of a fir- what we would call a first world nation, whether or not you subscribe to the, that kind of delineation, is employment rates and standard of living and the steadiness of companies and economies. And so unlocking or unleashing um, the joy in work is actually so tied to human flourishing. It is one of the keys because we do it for more hours than we do it anything else in life. And so I believe that that's actually something that as human beings we should regularly pursue, particularly in the church. That the church should not be this place where we come to forget whatever's happened in the past six days or whatever's going to, and, and not try to think about what's going to happen in the next six days. But actually it's a place where we are meant to tap into the joy that unleashes human flourishing in our lives, whatever your life's work is. And wherever that may find you this morning, whether you're someone that finds work very fulfilling, whether you're a, a live to work person, and maybe you love your job, but maybe you still feel a little bit uncomfortable at how much time it takes in your life, or you're a work to live, you know, I wouldn't do this if I wasn't getting paid for it, but I need to live, so I work. Whether you're trying to, you know, you're experiencing transition maybe in your workplace, or you're looking to make transition happen, or you're just looking for a job. Regardless of where we are in the spectrum for all of our lives, and if you're, um, you know, that if you think, well, for most of us, if you're under 40, you're not even halfway done. Don't, don't run out crying. That just means there's about 36,000 hours left for you to unlock. And even if you say, oh, I'm well past that, VJ. Judging from many of the other studies I've read, and certainly just talking to my dad, who's turning 70 this year, and some of his peers, many of them would say that they thought their 30s, you know, that was the time where they were really figuring out who they were, and then their 40s, and they're hitting the stride in their 50s, and they would say, actually, the 60s, our 60s are are, um, becoming some of our most productive years. So if you say, well, I don't have have 36,000 hours left. I only got five years and who's counting? But that your 60s and your 70s could be some of your most productive years as you've accumulated a lifetime of experience, built relationship networks, hopefully maybe found more and more of a sweet spot in terms of who you are and the kind of work and the balance and all of that stuff. So really, no matter what age you are, no matter what life stage you're in, unlocking human flourishing in work is critical for every one of us. And something I believe as followers of Christ, we should be leading the way in, that this should be something we should be thinking about and talking about and helping people in our lives understand it. And so we're taking several weeks really to sort of peel back the layers of what work is and what it's meant to be. I think for many people, they don't really know or understand what God has to do with their work. Maybe some people think, well, you know, God is kind of, kind of the giant eye in the sky just making sure I don't steal any paper clips and, and I'm not surfing the net too long at work. Maybe for many people think, well, I pay attention to God on Sunday, but he's not paying attention to me too much on Monday. I don't really know how this works. Maybe others might think, well, you know, either subtly maybe in the religious tradition you grew up in or whatever just the default thinking was in your home that God kind of views your work as sort of a necessary evil too. He'd much rather have you in church seven days a week, but you have to work, so go ahead and do that. And it's kind of an evil thing, but it's not holy work like if you're a priest 
or um, a missionary, or if you're engaged in humanitarian work, that's work that God sort of enjoys. The rest of it, it's kind of okay. It has to happen just because we need to live, but no more than that. Now, you might not say that, that you think God thinks your work is evil, but how often do we really consider, does God care about the emails that I write, that I receive? Does God care about the conversations that I have with someone over coffee in the lunchroom or the water cooler? Does God care about or delight in a great lesson plan that I just pulled together that I really feel engaged and excited about? We don't often tend to think that way about God's view of our work. And so, in a sense, it's created this mentality that for many years even persisted in the church that there's such a thing as sacred and holy work, which God would obviously care about and prioritize, and then there's everything else. And so many of us live in that place where we don't totally know. And so we want to take several weeks to unpack and say, well, what does God think about this? And what, how, how he thinks and what he says about it actually dramatically impacts us and could be the key to unlocking human flourishing for myself, my family, my workplace, my city, my country in this world. And we're going to take several weeks to do that. And so if I don't answer everything today, there's more weeks to come. You're going to have time in your home groups to kind of mull over this stuff and talk about it and say, each of us works in very different spheres. And what your office is is quite different depending on who you are and what you do. And so each of us need time to go, what does this mean for me in my workspace, in in, in my life's work? So we're going to have time to do that in your home groups. We're going to have some Q&A after some of the messages in case there's questions that are coming up. We even have this great contest that's in your bulletin, Most Embarrassing Work Stories. And don't tell me you don't have them. I know some of you have fantastically embarrassing work stories. So we're going to do a contest. So if you can, you can email Melissa in one of your embarrassing stories. You don't have to, you can say, I want to remain anonymous. But we'll have a prize at the end. I don't know what the prize is. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be so glad you entered the contest. But uh, just to be able to realize we're not the only ones who sometimes feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that uh, in our workplace. So that's uh, there for you. And I actually had you fill out a survey and 70-something of you filled out the survey just to get some questions about workplace. So here's some of the results that you had, okay? Most of you enjoy your job. This is great. These were great results. 50% of you said you enjoy your job very much, and 40% said somewhat. Um, the, the two reasons you cited if you enjoyed your job is the people you work with, and you felt, I'm good at it. I'm, I'm competent at this work. The most frustrating part of your job for most people by far was it just doesn't leave you enough time for other things outside of work. Um, most of the people you work with seem to enjoy their job too. So we're all fooling each other. No, I'm just kidding. That's cynical. This is, this is good news. I think you'd beat the average. I think I read uh, the other day in the GTA that uh, just over 50% of people enjoy their work. So we're at, like, we're rocking 90% there. So that's, that's pretty good. Um, and 95% of people think that God and his words could impact your present work. 70% of you said very much so. Uh, 25% of you said somewhat. I think what God says in the Bible could, could impact my, my present work. So as Christians, I think we're pretty sure, if you call yourself a Christian or follower of Christ, you're pretty sure that God has something to do with your work, okay? What he, who he is, what he says, okay, that, I'm sure this impacts me, but if I know my own life, I think for the longest time in my work, I felt like, to, okay, to know God and to love God and pray, and how does that impact my work? Well, one, I should be a, a, an ethically and morally upstanding person, because so that's what it means to love God and work. I, sh- I shouldn't do anything unethical, I shouldn't do anything immoral, and, and that's you know, what it means. And then secondly, um, I should tell other people about Jesus because I love Jesus and he's changed my life and his love has changed everything. And, he, and, he, and he's um, forgiven me and given me um, freedom from sin. And he's given me the unconditional love that I'm so seeking for in life. So I should tell people about that. And that's, and that's what it also means to be a Christian in my workplace. And those are two legitimate things. But I think for the longest time, I never really understood, okay, well, what, how does God impact the product launch that I'm working on? How does my relationship with God affect this advertising I'm making? How does my relationship with God affect the people that I'm meant to sort of help or come alongside? How does God affect the relationship I have with my boss? How does God affect the culture dynamic in my team that I've just inherited from somebody else? And now I'm tasked with, how does God affect the fact that now suddenly my job has changed or has been realigned or now I'm in this new reality and I'm not sure what to do next and I have a very steep learning curve or I feel like I'm striking out at work? What does God have to do with that? And I would say it was only in the last couple of years 
of my role, uh, you know, when I was working in the business world, and then in the last five years studying the scriptures and starting to realize God has everything to say about all of those things. That knowing him and his plans for me and the way he views work actually changes every hour of my day, has the potential to unleash human flourishing in my life, in my home, in my workplace. And so that's where we're headed. I want to begin with the beginning and start with the fact that as we read scripture, what we will be surprised more than anything else to find is that God is a God who works. I read from Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, and maybe this is very familiar territory for you, or you assume you've heard this story somewhere before. This is the very beginning of scripture. The very opening pages, we said scripture, remember, is God's story, but it's our story as well. And as we understand his story, we understand our story. So how does the story of our lives begin? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So I want you to picture this for a moment. And Genesis, especially Genesis 1 and 2, is very poetic kind of description. And so in our minds, I were meant to see, you know, the writer of Genesis, we pretty sure was Moses, sort of fast forwards the part of the whole earth being made out of nothing. And he's starting with God in a sense, standing over almost like an artist over an empty canvas or someone standing over the earth and the earth, it says, was empty and void, like shapeless. And so it's just kind of this dark mass. And into that, God begins to work. And the rest of the chapters of Genesis 1, he says, you know this, maybe many of you, let there be light and there was light and let there be day and night and let there be sky and land and let there be bushes and trees and plants and seas and let there be animals that walk and crawl around the ground and other birds that fly in the air and fish of the sea and great things. And God, in a sense, one after another begins to create and turn what was empty and black and shapeless into something beautiful. And it says after every time he was doing something, working, speaking, he says, this is good, this is good. It's this picture of God kind of running around, in a sense, the cosmos, working and loving it. And in fact, the Hebrew word that's used to describe God at work here is the common everyday word for work, which we may think, okay, whatever. But in the, in the ancient world and in ancient religions, gods didn't work. You didn't have to because you were a God. Why would you work? Other people did things for you, but you didn't work. And if you did work, it was very sort of grand cosmic. It was not manual labor. And yet the word to describe God here, yes, he's doing this great cosmic work of shaping the world and bringing it into existence. But the picture is of a God with his sleeves rolled up, creating up to his neck in manual labor. In a sense, God as a gardener turning the world into something beautiful. And he's enjoying it. He's participating in this. And so the opening pages of scripture describe God at work. And now think about his work, right? What, if you think about creation. And I was telling the, uh, the teachers this morning as we were praying together, my kids have started watching this human, these human planet DVDs, which are amazing. And they just talk about various cultures all over the world and how they interact with nature and just try to live off the land and stuff like this. And so there are things we've discovered about the earth of the way God made it. But think about God's work, okay? So now we have this picture of God. He's at work right away. The opening story of scripture has God fully engaged in work. His work is beautiful. We know that. So he's an artist, but his work was also very practical. Think about the ecosystem, the way creation hangs together. How the sun, in a sense, gives life and plants give oxygen and plants are also food for other animals. And so all, everything we know about this ecosystem, your kids learn that when they're in school, they get, everything is dependent on each other. It's all connected. God's creation was not just beautiful, it was very practical. It made earth habitable. People and human beings, living things could actually live on it. So beautiful, but also practical, but then also beautiful and impractical. He made other planets that are not habitable, just for fun. There was no practical, we don't, what is the practical 
implication of these things, well, sure, they, feel, they work into the whole field of gravity thing and the order from the sun and all of that stuff. But ultimately, these great spheres in the sky that we can barely see some, we need telescopes to see them. We're always trying to land probes on them, but they would burn us up if we you know, took off our oxygen mat. They're, they're totally impractical, but they're beautiful. Saturn has these rings around it. Why? Does it have any bearing on our life? Is it necessary for life? No, but it, God clearly decided, I want to make this like this. So he makes beautiful things, practical things, impractical things, things that we say, ah, makes sense, totally. Other things that we're like, why is that there? We don't know. And so God, the beginning of our story is a God who is at work doing spiritual work, yes, but also manual work, which is also clearly spiritual because God's doing it. It's beautiful, creative work. It's very practical It's left brain and it's right brain. God had both sides fully engaged when he created the world. And this is stunning to us to tell us that the marginal, sometimes marginal view we have of work or this thing that's this necessary evil that we have to do for life is a thoroughly unbiblical view. The idea that somehow, and God worked for six days and rested for one. He didn't work and rest the same amount. He didn't rest more than he worked. Most of God's life was work with rest in small doses. We're always looking for the opposite. Less work, more rest. Work in smaller doses. But actually what we see with God is at work, six days out of seven, he was working. And in small doses, he rested one in every seven, back to his work again. It begins to pull us out of this idea that work is somehow not sacred, not holy, and not even just certain kinds of work. It's interesting. My wife is studying the Bible with someone who's never really read it before, and they were reading Genesis this week. And the person said to her, I'm I'm just surprised how there's no rules in this book. She said, in my religion, there's always rules. What do we do with it? It's like, here's just a picture of God enjoying himself working. No parameters at this point yet. Him just enjoying what he's doing. Practical, impractical. Beautiful, detailed. Big picture, little. And and you know this, right? At creation, we make things that are beautiful when they look beautiful on the outside. So you see a beautiful painting, but you turn it around and what do you see? Wood, staples, the edge of the canvas. Not very pretty. Take a nice, beautiful car. And I know you you car guys, you never want to do this, but you peel back the leather on the scene. What do you see? It's all metal. Listen, it's not, that's not beautiful. That's why you cover it up with something that looks nice. In your house, you ever had to dig into your wall, go into an attic, and you find people just shove stuff in the walls and covered it up and drywalled over it. Just to make it look beautiful on the outside. But what do we find about God's beauty in creation? Peel back layer after layer after layer. Things that we keep discovering are beautiful at the ocean's depths that we never thought we could actually even take a camera down there to look at it. And how much more is there that we don't even know? So we see God creating, working, enjoying himself, and doing painstakingly caring over the things that no one's ever even going to see, but that he finds delightful. And at every level of it, he says, good, good, good. First and foremost, it just tells us this is a good God. Who creates and designs and takes care for beauty that nobody will see? Only someone that loves beautiful things. Only someone that is himself beautiful. He's not cutting corners, just trying to look like a good God. Underneath all the layers of beauty, there's more beauty. And he made an ecosystem that works together so that there is life. Not only that, we find work. I cannot say certain kinds of work are holy and other kinds are not. And this is kind of bad for me because God started the world before sin ever came in and said, it's good. You can work six days out of seven. We've said, what? We don't want to work more than five out of seven. But at the beginning of the story, at least, work was good. It was fulfilling. God was enjoying himself, and it was there for him. And at the height of this creation, God makes human beings. And there's a shift, right? From all the rest of creation to human beings. Every other part of creation, God spoke. He spoke, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke. He created human beings. What did he do? He used his hands and his, and his breath. He brought them close. This is why, generally speaking, I cannot fully accept 
the tenets of evolution because it places human beings at roughly the same level as every other part of creation. Yet the scripture story doesn't tell us how the world was created in specifics, but it tells us this, human beings were like no other part of creation. God formed us with his hands and he brought us close to his mouth and breathed life into us. And then look at what he says. He says he made men and women in his image and look at what it says about them. Verse 27. Verse 27, is that where? Yeah. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is so significant in light of what we have just read. So God creates this world. He's he's a God at work and he's making beautiful things and he's turning emptiness into something full and he's taking something that was shapeless and shaping into something that is alive and growing. And then he creates human beings and what does he say to them? Go and do the same thing. That verse that says, verse 27, fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue just means like control it, harness it. So now, what do we see God doing? The world was, it says the world was empty and shapeless. And so he filled it and he made it grow. And now he says to human beings, go fill the earth. It wasn't just talking about procreation. It was saying, make new things. I just did this. You go do it. I made it out of nothing. You'll never be able to do that. But take what's there and make new things fill it and subdue it. In other words, harness it, create and cultivate. This is the essence of what God did in creation. And then he created human beings, it says, in his image, and he sent them out into the world and said, go, create and cultivate. And we have done that ever since, haven't we? We don't know how to make things out of nothing, but we're really good at making things out of other things. We figured out how to make paper and glue from trees. We figured out air travel still blows my mind. I'm a simple person, but you can fill all these people in this shell of metal, pour gasoline in a fuel, and you step off hours later at the other side of the world. And all you mostly gave a thought was, why did I get pretzels at time instead of peanuts? You are flying. We have figured out how to do that. God turned over, and this is one of the insights that Tim Keller has in one of the books that we're using. There's about four books that I'm using kind of as a guide for this. We'll put them in the bulletin this week, uh, next week if you want to just kind of read them for your own journey. But in his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller notes that God turned over to us an unfinished creation. You ever thought about that? And my wife pointed this out to me this week. Fantastic. I talked to her about my sermons before I preached them. In Genesis 2, when it, it kind of, Genesis 1 tells us the whole picture of creation. Then Genesis 2 goes back and gives us the detailed picture into the conversation between men and women. And it says, no tree had come up from the ground because no man was there to cultivate it. Things weren't growing yet because no one had been put on the ground to make it grow. Now, does that speak to God's limitation? Uh, No, we just watched him bring the whole universe into existence by the spoken word. What does it tell us? It told us that he wanted us to go and find delight and enjoyment, just as he was running around in Genesis 1 going, this is good, this is good, this is good. I'm creating beautiful things and, and practical things and impractical things, and I'm having a great time. Now go and do it again. Fill the earth with things that don't exist. Make something new and make something grow. And he turned over to us an unfinished creation to actually go and do that. And so ultimately what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 is the description for our life's work to create and cultivate, to make new and to make grow. What does it mean to make grow? We are not in a sense like God who goes and just stands over something empty and speaks the word and boom, it comes up. But we are meant to go and say, what doesn't exist here that needs to exist? What, what did God see? Obviously, God saw us and all of creation in his mind's eye as he looked over this black, empty space. 
in a sense, you and I are sent out in the world, whatever it is you do, whatever sphere of influence and space and workplace you have been given to go and bring things into existence that are not there right now. That to look into black and dark and shapeless places and say, what can I make new? What is in my heart that I would love to see that today isn't there? What can I envision in my mind's eye that needs to come into existence? To make new and also to make grow. What is fledgling and small but needs to come out and have life? God made an apple, but he made an apple with seeds that plant trees that make thousands of apples. He didn't just make things. He made them able to reproduce and get bigger. And we have figured out, right, how to make new things. We've we've figured out how to make things grow. We've figured out irrigation farming. We've even figured out how to make ourselves grow like protein and all that stuff. I mean, you're into those protein shakes or whatever. You figured out, oh, what, what kind of foods do our kids need in order for bones to grow and get stronger? We've actually figured out how to make ourselves grow. We have done, in a sense, many of us completely ignorant about that this was a God-given mandate to go and make new and make grow and to delight in it and express God's goodness in it. Now, this should... If we embrace this for a moment, at least at the level of our thought, and say, okay, if all work is creation and cultivation, if all work is to make new and make grow, we should completely reject a good part of our culture's values when it comes to work, and these in particular. That there are some jobs that are more important than others, that that a a doctor and a lawyer, and that kind of work is more important than other kinds of work. Every work is creation and cultivation. We have created a pecking order, certainly in first world or Western culture, where certain jobs are more important than others. And we pay them more than others. And so we have accepted the fact that not only some work is more important than other work, but that some work is worthy of more remuneration than other work. And therefore, I should seek the more important work. We all do it. We all think a more important job, whatever that means, and a better salary is better. And according to scripture, that's just simply not true because all work is creation and cultivation. And God himself was at work with his sleeves rolled up doing work. And we know this in fullness when Jesus came because he didn't just come to do spiritual work. He was a carpenter too. And he spent more of his years in carpentry than he did doing traveling ministry. And we don't know anything about those years. They were clearly so ordinary that nobody thought to write any of it down. He started writing it down when he was doing crazy stuff. We better capture this. No one's going to believe this. But the first part of his life up to the age of 30 was working with his hands. And so as Christians, that should mean we don't, many, many people go and pursue jobs and work because they make more money and they're a total misfit with who they are as people. But they think, well, because this job's more important or this title's more important, I should do this work. And in the end, we end up pursuing jobs that aren't a fit with who we are. Maybe because our parents, you know, I, well, I always joke growing up in a, in a South Asian home, not my parents, but my grandmother, like because I wasn't a doctor or a lawyer, she didn't know what I did for a living. Like I was in marketing, but like, what is that? And I'm still trying to figure that out. But so it's not totally her, but like those don't fit sort of the typical categories of maybe what parents of this generation or previous generation thought was important work that they could be proud of. And if you come from Asian or South Asian home, you know, right? Like, especially your grandparents or whatever, they really love telling their friends what you do for a living, right? And as parents, we're all like that. We're all proud of our children, but we're proud in the way, oh, we're excited if we can say we do this. And, and many of you maybe feel like that, like you're very happy. Like you, if you meet someone new in a conversation, you're hoping it comes up what you do for a living. And others of us are like terrified if the conversation ever goes in that direction, and some of you that have chosen to be homemakers, you think, well, some of you will say, well, that's not really a job, which is the biggest joke. But many of us feel, depending on our work, oh, it's like that's, that's not more important. We have ranked it either by how our parents talked about it or how we think about it, or how our culture thinks about it, or what the pay grade is that we're on. And if we're Christians and we see, well, God is at work creating, cultivating, and everybody was given that job to go and make something new and make something grow, that takes all work and, in a sense, brings it to the same level. And one of the things I started to realize 
in some of the past jobs I had, the further up you went, the less able you were to create and cultivate. I remember one of the jobs when I finally decided to leave, one of the guys who was my boss, who I loved, who I thought set such a great culture in our team, he got promoted to vice president. And as soon as he did, he started to walk slower and he got, lost most of his hair and he was just kind of grumpy all the time. I'm not joking. I thought, I, I don't want that. And I realized he has less opportunity actually to create and cultivate. He has to toe the line even more. He works with less people. We would think, oh, he has more influence over the decisions. It didn't happen. It was the opposite. The sphere of influences was much more with the rest of us on the ground with bigger teams doing more of the hands-on work. And as you got more important and got paid more, you were able less and less to create and cultivate. And so we should challenge that notion as scripture readers, as Christ followers saying, this idea of some work being more important than others is totally unbiblical. And what I get paid for it has no sense of actually attributing what it's properly worth. to create, to make new. What does that mean? Some of you are entrepreneurs. You have ideas just coming out of you all the time. Some of you have actually done so much, and you've left your job and you've started your own business. Okay, and so what does it mean to, to make new? Well, in a sense, every day is a blank slate. And of course, you don't want to kill your company by just doing different things all the time. But part of what God has put into you and say, you've started something because you said, this should be, and it isn't. And I want to make it there. I want to bring life to it. Others of you, maybe you haven't started your own company, but you're always thinking about new ideas. This is a God-given instinct to make new. It is a calling on your life, and the world is so dependent on apparently they say only 2% of people have that kind of gift in terms of being able to look out and see nothing and say, this should be, and to be able to bring it into existence. The rest of society is very dependent on you to keep on doing that and you are accountable to God to do it. But what about the rest? I don't consider myself one of those people. So what about the rest of us? They would say, well, I'm not really like that. I don't know if I could start. What doesn't exist in your sphere of influence that by God you say, this should be? Maybe at your workplace, there's a culture of grumbling. And by workplace, I mean wherever it is, classroom, coffee room, Shop floor, office, cube, your home. There's a culture of complaining. There's no culture of gratitude. And you say, we need this. This is kind of blackness, what I see here in the culture of my workplace. I need to create something new. What can I, what can I do to start creating a culture of gratitude? I'm just going to start thanking people because it doesn't exist today. Maybe you feel the values of your company are, are concentrated in a certain area and you want to see them branch out. Maybe it means you're going to say, hey, I'm going to talk to somebody who I've got a little bit of influence with someone who's got some influence in the company. And I'm going to say to them, hey, why don't we ever do this? Why are we pouring so much money into our pockets and we're not actually giving any of it away? Could we do that? Could we do that actually as a corporate strategy? Could we start to think about that? Other things that you want to make new. Maybe people at your work don't eat meals together. Maybe you don't eat lunch together. I know for a couple of jobs I had, everybody ate at their desk. And then one person said, this is stupid. Let's eat together. Let's at least stop for a little while in the day. Maybe that's the new thing that needs to be created in your place. What things can grow? What things do you need to get behind with your energy and your horsepower? And you say, this is kind of fledgling or struggling, how can I help it grow? Who in my workspace is fledgling or struggling and needs my support and my encouragement to grow? How many of us, and I'm guilty of this too, we're just always thinking about our work and my space and what I think about what's happening in my job. What about the people around me? Maybe I have been put there for them. Maybe you're someone who's going to pour into someone else and what you do for them is gonna change their home life. Because as you become a voice of encouragement and flourishing in their lives, what's going to happen? It's going to affect the household that they go home to every day and people are going to benefit. Or maybe as you do that, you're going to convince that person who wants to leave the company to stay and they're the one of that 2% that thinks about new things and is able to make them grow. We have no idea what will happen if we begin to say, what can I make things grow around me? Who can I help grow? And we need creativity to think about this. 
Andy Crouch in his book talked about his wife, who's a physics professor. And here's how he described it. I want, you to, I want you to listen to this. This had nothing to do with the actual job she was supposed to do, but listen to how she created and cultivated. In her work as a professor of physics, Catherine can do much to shape the culture of her courses and her research lab. In the somewhat sterile and technological environment of a laboratory, she can play classical music to create an atmosphere of creativity and beauty. She can shape the way her students respond to, an, to exciting and disappointing results and can model both hard work and good rest rather than frantic work and fitful procrastination. By bringing her children with her to work occasionally, she can create a culture where family is not an interruption from work and where research and teaching are natural parts of a mother's life. By inviting her students into our home, she can show them that she values them as persons, not just as units of research productivity. At the small scale of her laboratory and classroom, she has real ability to reshape the world. So much of that activity had nothing to do with, it, with what's on her job description. We actually, and I, when I read that, I thought, I, we need time to rethink how we see our workplace. I mean, you're not going to do that unless you're a professor. Re- you could just rip all of that off and just do that in your lab if that's what you have control over. But what is in your sphere of influence? And don't tell me you don't have one. Everybody does. Even if you say, well, I have no one who reports to me, or I don't, I'm working with my kids at home and I don't know if I have any influence over them. We, we all have a sphere of influence. How can you reshape the way that you see that job that you walk into every day as a place that needs something new that God has sent you into to make new, or a place that needs something to grow that God has given you that God-like mandate to create and cultivate. We need time to reshape the way we see the places and spaces into which we work. And here's the thing, you may find this overwhelming and think, oh my gosh, I don't even know. I don't know if I have that influence. I don't know if I have that in me. As Christians, what we believe is that Jesus was not just this great example for us. If Jesus was just an example, the, what we call gospel, the good news is not good news because we could never be like him but he is also within us. He has given us his spirit. This carpenter, preacher, savior, Lord is living in each one of us. And so here's what we need to do first. Jesus, how can I, how can I invite Jesus into my creativity? How can I invite Jesus into the problems I'm trying to solve? How can I invite Jesus into my mind when I'm about to sit down and plan a lesson or or create a presentation? How can I invite Jesus into my car when I'm heading to an interview or I'm heading to a sales call? How can I invite Jesus into my day when I'm about to have a difficult conversation with a coworker or a child? Jesus, you are the one. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was present with God in the beginning, right? That's what John says. He was with God in the beginning because we believe in the triune God, the three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So we also know that Jesus was the one whose voice spoke everything out of nothing. Okay, Jesus, you are the one whose very words brought the entire life into existence from utter blackness. So come into my, you know, you're in me. I'm going into this situation that looks dark, that looks bleak, that looks shapeless. How can you help me speak life into this? How can you help me make something new when there's nothing there? Jesus, you are the one that calls out the things in the life to grow. It says, Jesus, you commanded the seas. You bring life. You bring healing. You brought resurrection life with your word. You brought dead things back to life. So how can you come into my workspace as I turn to the sphere of influence that I have, whatever it is? How can you speak through me to make things grow? How can you help me help this person grow? This person's struggling. I think they have so much potential. I don't know how to make them grow. Maybe you have people that are your direct reports and some of them are struggling and you don't know how to bring the most out of them. Or maybe you have peers and you have no formal authority over them, but they're struggling. Or maybe they're a cancer in your workplace. They're speaking kind of corrosive words every day. Jesus, help me help them grow. We have the spirit of Christ within us everywhere we go. Let's not leave him at the door, friends, before we walk across the threshold of our workplaces and spaces. So here's the question that I want us to ask. What can I create or cultivate through Christ? 
And and turn this into a prayer, because this really has to begin with prayer, because we can't do it by ourselves. Jesus, what can I make new? And here's some questions for you, and there's maybe more, maybe you've had ideas as you're sitting here thinking, what is lacking in my company, my team, or my family values, so the values in any of those places that I can try to create? And, and values, this, listen to me, people, those of you that work in workplaces where they put like values and culture statements on the wall, those don't mean anything. The culture is what actually happens in your workplace. What's the way things are done around here? And therefore, and culture is always changing. It is alive. And therefore, each one of us has the potential to shape it. So if there is something in the culture of your family, of your company, that you don't like, instead of criticizing it, how can I bring this into existence? What can I do to shape this culture in a new direction? Because I'm as much a part of it as anybody else and it's alive and breathing. And it doesn't matter whether anybody in my company thinks what I think is important or whether they're ever going to write my words on the wall and say, this is a great culture statement, but I can change the culture by virtue of the fact that I'm here. And Jesus has called me to make something new. What idea can I ask for a chance to try? Maybe there's something you've been wanting to try and, you, and you're going to ask, you're going to take a risk and say, hey, can you give me a bit of time in my workplace to do this? Can you give me a bit of budget to do this? Can you let me try this out for a month and see what happens? What leap of entrepreneurship do I need to make? Maybe some of you need to go and start that job or that company you've been thinking about forever. Christians should be the most entrepreneurial, should we? I don't mean reckless, like doing crazy stuff. But if we actually believe that we have a God-given responsibility to create new things, and we are not afraid about money because God creates and can give us anything we need, because that's what holds people back from a lot of times taking the leap of faith because they're too worried about finances. If as Christians, we really believe God provides for us, we should be leading the way in entrepreneurship. And so maybe for some of you, it's like, I got to try that new thing. What new habit or practice can I start that I hope will spread to my coworkers. This is really powerful. I, I put something in my calendar a couple months ago, just at four o'clock every Thursday, where I write a note to somebody in my life, either in our church or whatever, that, has, that I want to encourage. Because it was something I know I needed to do. Because I know how valuable it is to me, and I thought, I just need to put this into my calendar every week. Because there's all kinds of people in my life that bless me by who they are and what they do. And I want them to know. These are small little practices. You may say, well, the culture of my company is so, they just use us up. They treat us as, you know, okay. But you don't have to treat everybody like that. So what can you start? What can you do to make something new where you are? And what new work can I engage in for no pay? Maybe you spend all of your time working for the pay you receive and you don't, and you say, well, I don't have enough time to do other things. So do it and spend less time at work. I got to the point in my old job where I thought, if I just stay here and work until everything's done, I'll never leave. And I don't know that I'm just supposed to work as hard as everyone else does, because I think everyone else is working too much. So I'm just going to start leaving at a normal time, and if they fire me, they fire me. And I never got fired. So I don't know. Maybe that's the risk you need to take and say, at some point, I just have to push back and say enough is enough. And if you're a good worker and you're a hard worker, chances are they're not going to shoot their own foot. I don't come back and tell me, Vijay, I got fired. Okay. (laughs) Look, I don't know what you should do. I'm just saying. (laughs) Challenge the assumptions that we make about the things we have to do and don't have time to do. And when are we going to trust God and say, I'll take a risk and see what happens? What can I make grow? This one's huge. Who in my workplace needs encouragement or inspiration to grow? And how can I begin to see my life present wherever I am? I am here not just for me. Maybe there's somebody here who God wants me to change their life. Maybe someone is struggling their marriage and you don't realize if you actually just start to affirm them as a person, they will be a happier person going home. And that may have a positive impact on their family or on their health. Maybe someone you see struggling with their health and you say, you know what? We need to exercise in the morning. I'll meet you here at work half an hour earlier. Let's go for a run or let's hit the gym. Maybe you don't need it, but maybe they do. How, who has God put me here to help make grow? Who needs, what needs to be changed or rearranged? Can I try new stuff? Cultivation is like uh, Keller makes his point in his book. We're not park rangers where God has given us this creation and says, don't move anything. Just keep it the way it is. (laughs) 
Gardening is moving things around. Cultivation, trying to find what's going to grow best where. So maybe there's stuff that just needs to be rearranged in my workday, in my rhythm. Maybe I need to revisit my schedule. I haven't done it for a while. I need to look at it and say, is this the right order of things in my day? Or can I change when I look at my emails or when I exercise or when I whatever? How can I switch this up? And then what company or workplace initiatives need my support or energy to grow? I know, I was just as guilty as going, company comes out with a new thing, you're like, that's a dumb idea. That's never going to work. What needs my support to grow? Maybe if I see my company trying to do things and I think, well, they're doing it the wrong way or that doesn't make any sense, or if I was boss, well, you're not, but can you get behind what they're doing to make it grow? How can you be a part of what needs to come up? And listen, all of this needs interpretation for your own work context because every one of them is different. And if you have questions after this or in your home groups, let's talk it through this week in your home group. Say, how do I do this for me? How do I do this in my space? Guys, help me out. I don't know how this applies. Or by all means, send me an email. But this is key to unlocking human flourishing in our lives and in our families and in our workplaces is seeing that all work is God-given and we have a God-given responsibility to make new and make grow. And listen, we have no idea the impact that even the smallest action could create. I could give you stories of things that have happened, and you've read them on the internet, of the small things that turned into big things, and people that invented penicillin, a sticky note, or whatever, but they would, they would probably betray the truth that all work is valuable, whether anybody sees it publicly or not. If God is the God who creates beautiful things at the level that nobody sees, that does things because they're right, even though they may be impractical, or does things because they're beautiful, even though they may be impractical, then every one of us has full range to say, any small act that I do in fulfillment of this call to make new and make grow is significant to God and can be used in enormous ways. Maybe some of which I'll never get to see. But if that's what's lying here for us, don't think about all the things that needs to happen, but what's one thing I can begin to do and say, God, use this to create human flourishing in my workplace so that you get glory for this. And invite the worship team up and I'm going to pray. Jesus, we thank you for your life and your love and the things that you have done. We thank you for your work that is not just an example to us, but that your spirit is in us always working. And so fill each of us with the spirit of Jesus to make new and make grow. That slowly the places and spaces that we have influence over and that we are a part of would see more and more flourishing for the glory of Christ and the name of Christ by the power of Christ, we pray. Amen. For the benediction today, I want to bless you with what one person has defined as humility, which is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That song, it says, if this life I lose, is a bit scary, right? I want to lose my life in this, but really that's what we need to do in order to do this, is to lose more of the self. It's self that keeps us back from risks that we need to take. It's self that says, oh, I'm too important for this kind of job, or I should get that promotion instead of that person. It's self that gets in the way of creation and cultivation. So I want to bless you with forgetting yourself a little bit more and being able to see the place that God has sent you with new eyes this week in your home, the shop floor, the classroom, wherever that is, a little less of yourself and more of him. Did you receive that? Amen. Thanks so much.